This lecture is brought to you by Buford Road Baptist Church. The speaker today is Pastor David Kogel. And we're going to get back into our study. We've been doing in John. We'll continue on down. We're in chapter 19. We've been following uh, in chapter 19, of course, Jesus, we came to the place where he has been crucified, being crucified. They have been trying him illegally. He's been, they've been sending him back and forth from one to another. And we pick up at uh, verse number 15. No matter what Pilate said to them, they had made up their mind they wanted to see Jesus crucified. And so... Picking up there at verse number 15, they cried, Away with him, away with him, crucify him. And Pilate said unto them, Shall I crucify your king? You remember, he's kind of been back and forth. Sometimes he'll call it uh, this man or the man, and then he'll call him the king, and, and he, he goes back and forth with that title. The chief priests answered, We have no king but Caesar. Now, that was a, a, a very uh, strong argument with them, is this word king and kingdom. Uh, and that's, that's what they, they uh, and that's going to follow him all the way to the cross, even the plaque that is put above him uh, as well. So uh, we find here that uh, when he said, behold your king, it's apparent here that Pilate, of course, hated the Jews, and, and, and in scorn, he's actually saying this to them, calling him their king. Now, he certainly doesn't look like a king at this point. He's been beaten. Uh, he is miserable. He is, he is in a bad situation. They have really uh, done the Lord badly. So we find here that they cried out in verse 15, "'Away with him, away with him, crucify him.'" And Pilate saith unto them, Shall I crucify your king? The chief priest answered, We have no king but Caesar. Then delivered he him therefore unto them to be crucified, and they took Jesus and led him away. So this whole thing is driven by the crowd here. And it's not driven by Pilate's conscience. He has a conscience about it. He's been warned about it. He he, uh, but he decides, I'm going to go with what they want. I'm going to give them what they want. And so he did deliver him to them. Verse 17, And he, bearing his cross, went forth into a place called the place of the skull, which is called in the Hebrew Golgotha. So here Christ already weakened by the treatment of the soldiers, and now they're going to make him carry his own cross. And he's going to a place called Golgotha. It's a place of the skull. And it is called that because of the resemblance of that place. You can be there. I've been there. Looked upon it. You can see the physical appearance that resembles a skull. And so this place was also called Calvary. In Luke 23, it says, When they would come to a place which is called Calvary, there they crucified him. The male factors, one on the right hand and one on the left. So it is, it's called Golgotha in the scripture. It's called, the place, this is the place of the skull, and it's also called uh, Calvary. 
verse 18, when they crucified him and two others with him on either side, one and Jesus in the middle. So they're just crucifying the Lord between two criminals at this point. And Pilate wrote a title and put it on the cross. And the writing was Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. This title then read many of the Jews for the place where Jesus was crucified was nigh to the city, and it was written in Hebrew and Greek and Latin. So as I said, this title, this thing about the King of the Jews follows the Lord all the way to Calvary to where he made this plaque that he puts above here. And Jesus uh, had not been found guilty of any crime, and so Pilate placed this title above the cross. And it's written in Aramaic, which is the language of the Jews. It's written in Greek, which is the language of the culture at that time. And it's written in Latin, the official language of Rome. So it covers the whole vast crowd, really. Anybody there, anybody looking upon that sign would be able to read it in, the, in their language. They would be able to understand it, what it said, Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. Now, this, of course, even infuriated the Jews. They're never happy. They wasn't happy. What happened with him being on the cross? They wasn't happy. Uh, this didn't satisfy them. Now they, they are upset about the title that is said there. In verse 21, Then said the chief priests of the Jews to Pilate, Write not the king of the Jews, but that he said... I am the king of the Jews. And Pilate answered, what I have written, I have written. So the chief priest is even furious and demanded that you take that thing down and change it to he said. Don't just put thee, put he said. And so uh, Pilate, of course, uh, steps up to his authority place there and says, no, I'm, I'm refusing to do that. It's gonna, I'm going to leave it. What I've written is what I have written, and we're going to leave it at that. And uh, verse 23, the soldiers, when they had crucified Jesus, took his garments and made four parts to every soldier a part, and also his coat. Now the coat was without seam and woven from the top throughout. They said, therefore, among themselves, let us rend it, but uh, let us not rend it, but cast lots for it, whose it shall be, that the scripture might be fulfilled, which said they parted my raiment among them, and for my vesture they did cast lots. These things, therefore, the soldiers did. So uh, at this particular point, there's four soldiers that are, that are carrying out the crucifixion. They had certain soldiers that were trained to do certain things. The, be the beating of Christ, they were trained soldiers. They knew exactly what they, how they were going to carry out that, that beating. Now we get down to actually hanging him on the cross, and they are soldiers that are trained just to do the crucifixion part. And so <clears throat> each soldier wants to take uh, one garment because the value of a seamless uh, inner coat it was very much, so they cast lots for it. And unknowingly, the soldiers were really fulfilling Old Testament prophecy. It's amazing 
uh, here they think that they're doing something on their own, coming up with it on their own, but the Lord knew what exactly was going to happen and fulfilling prophecy. Now, the prophecy there <coughs> is Psalms twenty-two eighteen. If you're jotting those scriptures down in that uh, or or turning to those, it says, They part my garments among them and cast lots uh, upon my vesture. So they have fulfilled the scripture of Psalm twenty-two fifteen. So the soldiers did that. Uh, we're, we're looking at Christ that is bruised, beaten, mocked, tortured, really unrecognizable almost, and compelled to carry his cross at this point. And now Christ is hanging there naked before an angry mob. And the soldiers are carrying out all of these things uh, that, they, that they did during this crucifixion. Verse 25, Now there stood by the cross of Jesus his mother and his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Cleophas, and Mary Magdalene. So we put aside the soldiers for a while. We don't think about the crowd for a while, but we think about this particular group that is there at the crucifixion. And we find here that John mentions three women who loved the Lord, Mary his mother, Mary the wife of Cleophas, and Mary Magdalene. But then notice what Jesus does in verse 26. When Jesus therefore saw his mother and the disciple standing by whom he loved, he saith unto his mother, Woman, behold thy son. Then saith he to the disciple, Behold thy mother. And from that hour the, that disciple took her unto his own home. So why did Jesus speak to his, his mother and call her woman at this particular point? Well, we know that Mary was only his earthly mother. Christ is also her redeemer. Christ is also her savior. So you got to realize now he refers to her in that particular sense of, of a redemption relationship. I am your Savior. I'm, I'm not your son, your earthly son, as you would think of being the earthly mother. So he refers to her. That's why he calls her a woman at this particular point. Now, also, we see the love of Christ even hanging on the cross. What does he do? He looks down and he tells John to take care of his mother. Now, I think that that verse really teaches us, teaches all of us, that we have a responsibility to provide for and take care of our own parents. I think we should do that. And the, the, the Scripture says in many ways that we ought to, ought to do that particular thing. So it is very important that we do. Then verse 28, After this, Jesus, knowing that all things were now accomplished, that the Scripture might be fulfilled, saith, I thirst. So the, the whole life and death of Christ had been fulfilled. And you remember many times Christ would say, I came to do my Father's will, and he followed that through. And if you go back and think about it, there were many people along the way that wanted to try to stop that. 
There were people along the way who, even his disciples, who thought they'd step in and say, well, now, wait a minute, Lord, let's don't go there. Let's don't do this. Let's, and, you know, because certainly you're going to be arrested. Death is going to come to you. Let's not have these things. So there were many t things along the way. That, and even the devil himself decided to make a, uh, a temptation to Christ and said, you know, I'm going to try to get this thing uh, uh, done here. But it wasn't going to be accomplished that way. Christ fulfilled everything that he came to do. And that's why we see in the scripture, knowing that all things were now accomplished. Uh, another Old Testament scripture is Psalms twenty-two, fifteen. My strength is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue cleaveth, cleaveth to my jaw, and thou hast brought me unto the dust of death. So, we find here in this verse 28 that all things have been accomplished and Scripture had been fulfilled and now Jesus says, I thirst. So what were they going to do? You know, and another thing I want to bring out before we leave this because I get, I get so upset when I hear people talk to me about Christ's crucifixion. They say, oh, he was the Son of God and he, did, he didn't feel any of that. He was able to, to bypass all of that. He didn't, he didn't get any, any suffering didn't come his way. He, he, he was the son of God and he didn't feel anything. I, I tell you what, this is a scripture that also says here and it's evidence of his physical suffering. I thirst. Let me tell you, he felt every beating. He felt every pain. He felt everything just like these others on each side of him had felt. But not only that, he was bearing the sin of the world upon him. So you can imagine what Christ, we, we really can't imagine that, but we can only read about it and, and, and contemplate that these things were happening to Christ. Verse 29, Now there was set a vessel full of vinegar, and they filled it on a sponge, and uh, sponge with vinegar and put it upon a hyssop and put it to his mouth. The word vinegar here means that it was a very strong wine that was there and it, and it touched it to the Lord's uh, mouth there. Verse 30, When Jesus therefore had received the vinegar, he said, It is finished. And he bowed his head and he gave up the ghost. That word, three words are so very important. It is finished. Christ had completed everything and uh, he gave up the ghost. That means he died at this point. He gave his spirit back to God. That was the last thing that he could give. He had given everything. And he gave his spirit back to God. Verse 31, The Jews, therefore, because it was prep the preparation that the bodies should not remain upon the cross on the Sabbath day, for the Sabbath day was a high day, besought Pilate that their legs might be broken, and that they might be taken away. So to permit a body to remain on the cross until the next day was a, a Jewish violation to their law. They could not do that. They could not leave that body on there. And, uh, of course, we go back to the Old Testament, Deuteronomy 21, 22, and 23. If a man have committed a sin worthy of death, he is to be put to death, and thou shalt hang him on a tree. His body shall not remain all night upon the tree, but that thou shalt in any wise bury him that day, for he that hang that is hanged is a curse of God, that they 
that thy land be not defiled, which the Lord thy God giveth thee for an inheritance. So it was a definite Jewish law. It goes all the way back uh, there in, in the Old Testament to Deuteronomy. So the other thing that they, they knew that they could do at this point to make sure that they were dead was break their legs. And I know you've heard this before, how that each victim could press upon their legs and raise themselves up enough where their chest could take another breath. And so if their legs were broken, they would not be able to do that. That would hasten the death of that person, and the victim would not be able to continue to breathe and that they would die. So they certainly were going to carry that out. So, verse 32, Then came the soldiers and break the legs of the first and of the other, which was crucified him. But when they came to Jesus, they saw that he was dead already and that they break not his legs. Once again, people that want to try to say, you, know, you go back to the resurrection. Well, you know, Jesus never really died. Uh, he wasn't dead to begin with. So don't try to tell me that he, that he rose from the dead. He, he never died to begin with. What does the scripture say here? These soldiers made sure and they, they knew what they were doing. So they came to Jesus and they saw no breath being taken. They saw that he was dead already. So once again, that takes care of that, that uh, sorry reason that people want to give about the Lord not being dead. So uh, we, we find that uh, when they came to Christ, they did not break his legs. And we'll talk a little bit more about that prophecy in just a minute. Uh, verse 34, But one of the soldiers with a spear pierced his side, and forthwith came out, there came out blood and water. So one of the soldiers took a spear, and he pierced it into his side. Uh, don't you think also if someone was still alive that they would have made some type of noise or movement or anything when somebody pierces a spear through your side? So certainly they, they knew he was, he was dead. And he that saw it bear record. That's interesting to remember. He, who are we talking about here? We're in the Gospel of John. He that saw it bear record, and his record is true. And he knoweth that he saith, that he saith true, that ye might believe. So John adds that he personally witnessed all that this took place the events that he just described here. And for these things for these things were done that the scripture might be fulfilled, a bone of him shall not be broken. And again another scripture saith, they shall look on him whom they have pierced. It's just so amazing to go back all these years back in the Old Testament and see these very things taken out uh, and just like they were prophesied. So uh, the importance of the piercing and the fact that they did not break Jesus' legs is a fulfillment of prophecy, and that goes back to Psalms 34.20. He keepeth all his bones, and not one of them is broken. Isn't that, isn't that amazing and interesting to see that take place? Zechariah 12.10, And I will pour upon the house of David 
and upon the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and supplications, and they shall look upon me whom they have pierced, and they shall mourn for him as one mourneth for his only son, and shall be in bitterness for him as one that is in bitterness for his firstborn. So even these wicked soldiers in their duties to carry out the crucifixion process were completing the plan of God. So amazing. Like someone directly told them to do these things, and yet it happened exactly like the prophecy. Verse 38, And after this, Joseph of Arimathea, being a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for the fear of the Jews, besought Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus, and Pilate gave him leave. He came, therefore, and took the body of Jesus. And there came also Nicodemus. Y'all remember Nicodemus? I taught a Sunday school lesson on him as well, which had first came to Jesus by night and brought a mixture of myrrh and aloes and about a hundred pound weight. Then took they the body of Jesus, wound it in linen cloths, with the spices as the manner of Jews is to bury. So we have Joseph and we have Nicodemus. And it says they came secretly. So they were like secret disciples here, that they came and, and uh, unto the uh, place of the cross and they began to take Jesus down and they began to prepare the body of Christ for burial. Now, both of these men, Joseph and Nicodemus, were very wealthy men. They had, they had a lot of money. And they were members of the Sanhedrin. We know that as well. So, uh, you can go back in Luke 23, 51, John 3, 1, see that as well. So, what are they doing? They're taking the body of Jesus down carefully, and they're wrapping it uh, in strips of cloth that they wrap him in, and in doing that, they're using that sticky resin, that mixture of myrrh and aloe. And both of these spices are obtained from trees. I, I've done some studying into that as well. Now, it also says, it talks about what Nicodemus uh, had. It was about a 100-pound weight uh, worth. So we find here that Nicodemus contributed about 70 pounds in our day uh, in our weight system. So it was a very rich amount, but you know what? It was fit for a king. And Jesus was the king, so no amount would have been too unworthy for him. So they, they begin to prepare him. Now, verse 41, Now in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden. And in the garden, a new sepulcher, wherein never man yet laid. And there laid they Jesus, therefore, because of the Jews' preparation day, for the sepulcher was nigh at hand. So they quickly prepared the body for burial, and they put it in a new sepulcher, and that's near, very near the place of the crucifixion there. And they intended to finish their preparation after the Sabbath day. They could only do so much before the day is ending. So they wanted to get it prepared, do as much as they could, get it in, get his body into the sepulcher there, and they would, of course, come back 
later on. Luke 24, 1 says it like this. Now upon the first day of the week, very early in the morning, they came into the sepulcher bringing the spices which they had prepared and certain others with them. So they were going to finish where the others had left off, continuing to get uh, prepare the body there as well. Now let's get on into verse uh, chapter 20. The first day of the week cometh Mary Magdalene early when it was yet dark unto the sepulcher and seeth the stone taken away from the sepulcher. So it was on Sunday that Mary Magdalene came to the tomb and as we said just a minute ago, she's bringing spices with her to anoint the body of Christ. And what does she see upon getting there? She sees the stone has been taken away. Now, I don't know if Mary knew. I'm sure she probably knew there was going to be something in front of the sepulcher, and probably she knew it was going to be a stone there. A lot of times the sepulcher like that, they had a track already built in where that stone could roll on, not fall over, but roll and then roll in place over top of the sepulcher. So I can only think she's wondering, I don't know how I'm going to get that out of the way. I don't know what I'm going to do, but I'm going anyway, and I'm going to see what's happened here uh, with the body of Christ, and I'm going to finish everything that I need to be doing. So she begins to realize, hey, the stone has been taken away. And Mary probably would have stopped at this point and thought, well, that's good, I don't have to deal with the stone, but that's bad because that means that somebody could have taken the body of Christ. So she says, I I don't know exactly what I'm going to find at this point. So what does she do? It says then in verse 2, she runneth and cometh to Simon Peter and the other disciple whom Jesus loved and saith unto them, they have taken away the Lord out of the sepulcher, and we know not where they have laid him. So she's come to this conclusion. The stones rolled away. It's no need for me to even pursue any further. I need to go back and get some help. I need to tell somebody. So she runs with this news to Peter and John, because when you see the other disciple that Jesus loved is referring to John. So these two are, are the, to be the leading disciples that are going to run, they're going to find out everything they can about this situation. And so we find that uh, verse 3, Peter therefore went forth and that other disciple and came to the sepulcher. So they ran both together and the other disciple did outrun Peter and came first to the sepulcher. So upon hearing this news that the stones rolled away, and we need to investigate this. Peter and John took off running as fast as they could. They probably started walking real fast, but then they broke out into a run, and they run together. Maybe John was a little bit younger than Peter. Maybe that's why he outran Peter. I don't know. But they would get there and arrive there and find out what's going on. Verse 5, Then he, stooping down, looking in, saw the linen clothes lying, yet went not in. So you got to picture John has got there first. He's run up to the sepulcher. He's shaking all over. And what does he do? He stops and he looks in. 
He just looks in. He doesn't, want to, he doesn't want to go in. He's scared to go in. He don't know what to expect. And he just peeps in and looks in. Peter's still on the way. He hadn't got there yet. And as he begins to get to this place where stooping down, what does he see on the inside? He sees the linen clothes lying. Linen clothes that Jesus was wrapped in. Those are lying there in the sepulcher. Doesn't mess with them, doesn't go in. He just sees that. Then, verse 6, cometh Simon Peter following him and went into the sepulcher and seeth the linen clothes lie and the napkin that was about his head, not lying with the linen clothes, but wrapped together in a place by itself. Those scriptures speak several things that are very important for us to know. Now, Peter doesn't stop like John did and, peer, and peep, peeps in. Peter just runs right on in. I'm kind of seeing brushing John out the way. Boy, I'm just going in there. He sees the same thing that John sees. He sees the linen clothes lying there. But then he looks over and sees the napkin that was up over his face folded and lying in a separate place. So that tells me a couple of things. We go back to some of these stories that people come up with. Somebody stole the body of Jesus. That's all that happened. Jesus didn't walk out of there. Somebody stole his body. Well, if somebody was to come in and steal someone's body, they certainly wouldn't take time to take the napkin off of it and fold it and put it in another place. They would have been thrown somewhere and they would have gotten out of there. So once again, that theory is, is no truth in that at all. And so he sees these things taking place here inside the tomb, and it, I'm sure it seemed very strange to him. Now remember, we're not seeing any, anybody else at this point in the tomb. We're not hearing anything about in, anybody else, but we just see that the, that the, that the napkin's lying in a separate place uh, from the grave clothes, and so definitely nobody stole the body. <clears throat> Verse 8, Then went in also the other disciple which came first to the sepulcher, that's John, he saw and believed. For as yet they knew not the scripture that he must rise again from the dead. So John's still remaining on the outside, kind of waiting for Peter's uh, to come up with what he saw, what's going on in there. And so he he's, uh, decides at this point, I'm going to go in. And when he saw, he believed. So the teachings of Christ's resurrection now begin to dawn on them. You know, he had been telling them about this all along. And their sight now turns to faith, and they realize that Christ had risen again from the dead. Verse 10, Then the disciple went away again. Disciples went away again into their own home. So overwhelmed by what they have seen, and the observation and the faith that they have produced in them, they are satisfied at this point. Christ is risen, and they return home. Probably thinking to themselves, I don't know when we're going to see him again. I don't know what's going to happen from this point, but they have gone home. Now, Mary, you remember, she ran back to get them. And, of course, they ran ahead, so Mary probably got on the path again, headed back to the sepulcher. It's taken a while for her to get back there, but now she's back at the sepulcher, and she stood without the sepulcher weeping, and as she wept, 
she stooped down and looked into the sepulcher, just like John did. Hadn't gone in yet. She's just looking in. She's just seeing what's going on. So Peter and John have returned home. She has no knowledge of the Lord's rise. She don't even know what they came up with or what they decided upon. But she stoops down and looks into the tomb. Verse 12, but something different happens in here. Remember, John looked in, John went in, Peter rushed in. Nobody's in there, just the grave clothes and the napkin. But now as she peeps in, she sees two angels in verse 12 in white sitting, the one at the head, the other at the feet where the body of Jesus had lain. Two angels. And there's no explanation given for the appearance of the angels to Mary and not to the other two disciples. I, you know, I have no uh, way to let you know why that was. There, there's no uh, explanation given for that. But we find that it is interesting to note that heaven was interested in the resurrection and sent the two angels there to be one at the head, one at the foot, as Mary had returned. And verse 13, And they say unto her, Woman, why weepest thou? She saith unto them, Because they have taken away my Lord. And I know not where they have laid them, laid him. And when she had thus said, she turned herself back and saw Jesus standing and knew not that it was Jesus. And Jesus saith unto her, Woman, why weepest thou? Whom seekest thou? She, supposing him to be the gardener, said unto him, Sir, if thou have borne him hence, tell me where thou hast laid him, and I will take him away. You see, Mary's still in this mindset that Christ is dead. Somebody has taken him. You know, she sees the stone rolled away. All she sees is angels in there. Now, she saw the linen clothes and the napkin, but I don't think she came to this uh, idea that he has risen from the dead. You remember what she said in some of the scripture here? Where have you laid him? And even talking to Jesus himself, thinking he's the gardener, <coughs> says, Sir, if you'll tell me where you have put him, maybe you have moved him somewhere, I would like to know where that is and let me know about that. So she's weeping. This is a time of triumph, but the angels want to know, why, Mary, are you weeping? This should be a, a joyful time, Mary, because you don't see the body of Jesus here. He's gone. He's resurrected. Why weep about that now? And so Mary wants to know where the Lord's body is lying so she can complete. Remember why she came? She's wanting to come to complete that process of embalming. She has those spices there. And so she's overcome with sorrow and grief, and she doesn't even recognize Jesus. You know, I think there are times in our life when maybe we have lost a loved one and we become so overcome with sorrow and grief that we're not even conscious of a lot of things that are going on around us. You ever been to that place? Things that, you know, seem to be important are not important at this particular time because you're overcome with some grief and sorrow. So, you know, the, I can understand Jesus, uh, Mary, not really uh, at that point 
Well, she's recognizing Jesus. I know a lot of people, well, why didn't Mary recognize Jesus? He spoke to her. Surely she would have recognized him. But we, of course, find that uh, he asked the same question that the angels ask, and he receives the same answer. Verse 16, Jesus said unto her, Mary, and she turned herself and said unto him, Rabbani, which is to say, Master. What is the difference when Jesus spoke now and when Jesus spoke earlier? You know, he spoke to her earlier and said, Woman, why are you weeping? But when he called her name, Mary, something sparked in her at that point. She recognized, I believe, the voice. She recognized who was speaking to her. And that's why she called him Rabbani, which is to say, Master. Verse 17, Jesus saith unto her, Touch me not, for I am not yet ascended to my Father, but I go to my brethren and say unto them, I ascend unto my Father and your Father, and to my God and your God. So the word touch me not here. Now let me ask you this. If you saw somebody that you thought had passed away, Somebody told you maybe they wouldn't or anywhere around you, but you thought maybe they were they were gone. And then at, you've come to this point to realize, hey, they're still living. Or even if someone that you haven't seen in a long time, what is the first thing that you usually do? You'll run up there and you'll hug them. You'll tell them it's so good to see them. You'll cling to them. And that is the, the words that we're trying to get here that Jesus is saying. He's saying, don't cling to me, Mary. Don't hang on to me. Don't try to hold me back or anything that i got to continue to do here. And so it's not that he doesn't want Mary's love or want Mary to be so happy and, and, and do the things that she's doing, but he is really trying to get across to her, don't cling to me at this particular point. And don't do uh, anything that would distract me from continuing to do what I need to do. So his destination here was to go to the Father. And so uh, he's also going to go to my brethren, and he's using the term here, your Father and your God. That is, that is some different terminology than what he's been teaching uh, at this, before his crucifixion. But now he's really getting them, letting them know there's a relationship going on here between the disciples and the Son and the Father. So, verse 18, Mary Magdalene came and told the disciples that she had seen the Lord and that he had spoken these things unto her. So the commandment given to Mary is a, is a commandment that's given to all of us as, as Christians. And that's where to go and tell that Jesus is still alive today. He is a risen Savior. And that message is so very true that we ought to continue to, to tell everyone that we know. <clears throat> so you got to remember that Peter and John go back not knowing anything else except the grave's empty, that Jesus, they remember what he said, but nothing else at this point. You can imagine when Mary comes and says, I have seen the Lord. Boy, they probably got really excited about that. Well, our time is running out here, and we'll continue on the next time we get back into John. We'll take a little break from that, but we'll, we'll get back into, into verse 19 and finish out chapter 19. And uh, maybe that way will help me remember 19, chapter 19. 
And if I forget, y'all remind me. <laughs> but we'll get back to that. But I'm glad we serve a risen Savior. Amen. I'm glad he's not in the grave. No one stole him. But he, he did definitely die on the cross. And he definitely rose again. So what great, wonderful news that we have to tell. You listen to Pastor David Kogel. For more information, visit our website at BufordRoadBaptistChurch.com.